Please pray with me. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that we need to guard our hearts. Above everything, guard our hearts because life flows out of our hearts. In other words, our hearts will reveal the condition, our lives will reveal the condition of our hearts. As we live our lives, it really will reveal how our hearts truly are. Are they generous? Are they loving? Are they what I call gospel soaked? They hardened, are they evil? All right, think of the Grinch who stole Christmas. His behavior was in direct correlation or response to the condition of his heart. Have you seen that story? I know you have. It's one of my favorites. What, that poor guy, he had a heart that was two sizes too small. And he acted like, well, a Grinch. It wasn't until there was a change. A change in his heart grew three times his size. And the true meaning of Christmas came through. And the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches plus two. This morning, we're not going to look at a Grinch's heart. We're going to look at our hearts. And this morning, the text that God has given to us in the book of Acts is, is pretty sobering, to be honest with you. It's, a, it's an incredible text that God has for us. And in the story that God has for us, he's going to reveal two types of hearts. He's going to reveal a righteous heart. A, a, a heart that I call a gospel-soaked heart. A heart that's been transformed by the reality of who Jesus is. A heart that has been made new, that Jesus has come for us and died for us, that Jesus has resurrected from the dead and now lives as a reigning king. And as that king, he has given to us not only a new life, but he's giving us a new heart. And he calls that heart to be a gospel-soaked heart filled with love, love for God and love for one another. But we'll also see the opposite side. We'll see a evil heart. A heart that's selfish, a heart that's hypocritical, a heart that even pretends to be religious. It's scary. A heart even inside the church. We'll look at these two stories and we'll look at the fact that there are issues of the heart that really that we're looking at and the consequences of the gospel. But we'll also see this. It takes great power, resurrection power, For our hearts to be changed. For our hearts to change. It's only by the grace of God that we can have a generous heart. That we can have a gospel-filled heart. We're going to see that power. What is the power that would change our heart? We will also see that it's a fearful thing. It should be a fearful thing for us to have an evil heart in front of a holy God. We'll see that this isn't just some nice little Christmas story but the consequences of our hearts have eternal significance, both today and to the life everlasting. So in Acts chapter four, we'll pick up the story in verse 32, exactly where we left off last week. We'll go into chapter five, although scripture breaks this into two chapters, we'll see how these two stories really uh, are one story tied together that God has for us. We're gonna see the beauty of the church We're going to see the church as it should be. 
And we're also going to see the depravity in the church. And the church, sadly, the way it is sometimes. Hear God's word as I read. Uh, Follow along with me silently, please. God's word. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. You figure? The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter, I want to put the word graciously, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let us pray. Father God, it's always at this point, after reading your word, that I'm so driven to prayer, begging the Spirit of God to show up with power and show us Jesus. And God, with a text like this that is difficult in many ways for us to wrap our minds and our hearts, our understanding, our beings around, God, I I, I beg you, I beseech you, come. Come in the name of Jesus. Come and speak through a broken sinner like me who on my own right should fall over and breathe my last before a holy God. 
but by your mercy and grace, who's been forgiven and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Come speak. Give us ears to hear your voice. Father, I pray that you would shine by your spirit into our minds and let us understand your word. Father, for your glory and for the health of this church, may there not be a heart here today that isn't touched by you. Father, this, we need to hear this. We need to hear how our hearts are changed and the danger of an evil heart before a holy God. Father, would you lovingly break the hearts that you need to break, mend the hearts that you need to mend, but speak to each one of our hearts. Father, would you be with us so powerfully that you'd cause us to leave here and to walk in a manner worthy of the name of Jesus, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel for your glory, for the testament of the name of Jesus. Anything that I say that is my opinion or wrong, may that fall away and be forgotten quickly. But God, the things that are said that contain the good news of the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus, would you use those things to make us more like him, more alive in him? Fill this place with your grace for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Putting this story uh, in the proper context of the Bible is very important. And we got to kind of see the big picture of the Bible story for this story to make sense. It's a pretty amazing story, is it not? I mean, you got both the church at its finest where everybody had one heart and soul and they were selling their possessions and there was no needy persons among them. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira who would lie, who would embezzle who had lied even to the Holy Spirit. What, a, what an amazing contrast between the two. But for us to really understand what this story means right here in the book of Acts at a time like this, we've got to pull back and see the overarching Bible story and how this fits. You see, these, these are the mostly Jewish folks there in the temple, and they would know God's law, and they would remember Deuteronomy 15.4 promised this. Deuteronomy 15.4 says, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land, and the Lord, your, the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Here's the point. When the scripture tells us that there were no poor among them, it's clearly revealing to us that Deuteronomy 15.4 is being answered. That this is God's remnant. This is God's people. And God's promise has come through Jesus Christ. And the blessing of the gospel and the blessing of the Holy Spirit is upon them. And they're acting as scripture said they would act. And they were, they were selling their possessions and there wasn't a poor among them. And you could see that that would give them great joy to know that God's promises are coming true in Christ Jesus. Look what he's doing for us and through us through the gospel. But there'd be another story that they'd also remember. It's a, not a good story. It's a story of a man named Achan. We find it in the book of Joshua, chapter 7. In Joshua 7, that's uh, the, the book of the Bible that tells us of the conquest of Canaan, the promised land. God had delivered his people out of slavery, amazingly. God had led them through the Red Sea in an incredible fashion. God had guided his people for 40 years through the wilderness. And now they are there. Now they're at the promised land and God has promised them everything. And to go in to be with them and that he would conquer theirs and his enemies. And at the, one of the first battles, the Battle of Ai, a man named Achan, 
He saw the spoils that were belonged to the Lord, and he took some for himself, and he hid them. Scripture says that he embezzled from God. And the same Greek word, when that Hebrew word is translated in the Septuagint to Greek, is used here to describe Ananias and Sapphira. That they were actually embezzling from God. And that has amazing consequences. Interesting, both stories happen at the beginning of conquest. In the book of Joshua, there's an immediate sinfulness and an immediate judgment. And here we find the church at the beginning of the church's mission. Ananias, which by the way means God is gracious in Hebrew. And Sapphira, which in Aramaic means beautiful, embezzled from the Lord. And they were quickly punished. But as we see where it fits in the context of the overarching story, really what we need to see first and foremost as well is the gospel impact upon the heart. Hearts were being changed. Lives were radically altered. The way people were doing life, doing community, was radically changed because of the good news of Jesus Christ. It says this, With great power in preaching and testifying, the apostles preached of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They preached the fact that Jesus was no longer dead, but alive. And that produced great grace. The reality that Jesus has not only paid for their sins, but now was living beside the Father at his right hand, ruling and reigning, led to great grace in the church. It changed everything. And that great grace led to great generosity. There was not a person in need among them. All who believed had one heart. You see, that's the gospel impact on the heart. But what changed everything? What changed everything, my brothers and sisters, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did the apostles preach? They didn't preach just Jesus' teaching. They didn't preach just morality. They didn't preach just, you know, what the law says and what it requires of us. They specifically preached what they were forbidden to preach by the Sadducees and the leaders of the church, those that that were threatening them, their very life to preach. What did they preach? They preach with power the most important message is that Jesus is no longer dead, that that Jesus is alive. And with great power, they preached on the resurrection. Why? Because if it is true, if Jesus is alive, everything changes. You see, the reality is this. Jesus died for our sins, Scripture says. Scripture says that God was pleased to take all of our burdens and brokenness and put it upon Jesus on the cross. That he would become, you ready for this, a substitute for you and me. That what we deserve to pay in front of a holy God, Jesus would pay for us. Well, the question that we all want to ask, or we all should ask, is this. Did Jesus' atoning sacrifice for your sins work? Did it work for my sins? And the empty tomb is a declaration that the Father did accept the Son's sacrifice on our behalf. Think of it in banking terms. If you write a check, and you write a check, and you want to know, is this check that I just received good? How do you know if it's good? Well, if you can cast the check and the funds are removed, they're removed and they're deposited over to your account. How do we know that the father accepted the son's sacrifice for us? He removed the son. He removed the sacrifice. And we know that now that life reigns. Here's the beautiful thing, my brothers and sisters. Because of the resurrection, you and I are truly free. We're really forgiven. 
I mean, our sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west. The payment is really done. It's amazing that we now have the reality that life reigns in Christ Jesus. You see, with Jesus, his sacrifice was sufficient. It's interesting. Don't forget where they were. They were in the temple. And what was happening in the temple? People were bringing goats and they're bringing bulls and they're bringing doves. and They're bringing all these things to sacrifice for their sins. But the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible that the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. Scripture says that no one is forgiven without the shedding of blood. So why did God ask for all these animals to be butchered? If it didn't work, why would he ask for it? Because all it did is point to the one sacrifice that would work. It says that in the book of Hebrews that the priests daily, they stood daily and they sacrificed over and over and over and over again these sacrifices that could never take away uh, the sins of his people. But Jesus sat down after his sacrifice. Why? Because it worked. Because we are forgiven. Because our sins have been paid. His sacrifice was sufficient. Not only that reality, but no longer does death reign. Now life reigns. Before Jesus' resurrection, death had the final say. Death was the final point. But now in Christ Jesus, life reigns. Romans five seventeen. For if because of one man's trespasses, and that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the point. They were preaching the resurrection. And they realized that not only were their sins forgiven, but now life reigned. Now the life that Jesus has given them truly was abundant. It truly was eternal. The story will continue. And if it's true, my brothers and sisters, if it's true that we are forgiven, and if it's true that we've been given life that cannot tarnish or go away, even by the grave, it should change everything. And it did. The reality is why they preach the resurrection. If there's no resurrection in Jesus, there's no hope. Scripture itself tells us that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, my preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Basically saying this, if Jesus is in the tomb somewhere, if there wasn't the empty tomb and the power of the resurrection, you're wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. I mean, it's, it's so much more than just a, a moral example. I mean, he, he came to be Savior. He came to give us life. He came to take away our sins. If there's no resurrection, we have no hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If he just went to the cross, but he stayed in the grave, it didn't work. And we still are sinners in God's sight. And it says, the next verse, in verse 19, if our hope is in Christ for just this life, we're to be pitied because we're fools. Why did they preach the resurrection of Christ Jesus? Because the reality is, if Jesus lives, everything changes. If Jesus lives, the sacrifice was sufficient. 
If Jesus lives, we do too. We're free. We're alive. We can be fruitful. What an amazing reality. And that and that alone should change our hearts. That and that alone has the power and the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ to make us new creatures in Christ, to give us new hearts, to live our lives completely different. It says the resurrection is the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means this, because he was resurrected from the dead, so will you be, and so will I. And he showed us a picture of how we will be. In 1 John 3, 2, it says that when, we, when he appears, that we will be like him in resurrected glory. Why they preach the resurrection? Because they said your sins are paid for. Your sins are covered. And life now reigns. That's the power of the gospel. Do you know it? That's the good news that makes us whole and gives us life. And now we see the issues of the heart. We see the issues of the heart in Barnabas in the early church, the evidence of a righteous heart. One of my favorite professors in seminary was a gentleman by the name of Bruce Walkey, a brilliant theologian in both Old and New Testament, a great scholar who's translated many translations of the Bible. And I'll never forget one of my favorite classes of his was going through the book of Proverbs. And we were looking at the Hebrew word for righteous righteous uh, in the book of Proverbs. And he said this, he said, righteousness is about those who disadvantage themselves for the benefit of others. Righteousness, those who by God's grace have a new heart are those who disadvantage themselves for the benefit of others. And that's what the early church was doing. And they looked and said, listen, we're one. It's more about us than it is about me. The most important thing is Jesus and the kingdom. And so they they disadvantaged themselves because why? You ready for this? God gave them something bigger to live for than themselves. God was calling them not only to himself, but to his kingdom. And they had the joy and the privilege of living for something greater than themselves. And they realized what Jesus said was true in John 13, 35, that, that we should be recognized by the way we love him and the way we love one another. And it was so clear that they, they, they realized that the gospel was true and that Jesus was alive. And guess what? Their stuff became their stuff. And it was just stuff. And it wasn't their identity and it wasn't their joy and it wasn't their reality and it wasn't their hope. And so what do they do? They just didn't hold on to it. And when someone had a need, someone said, hey, you know what? I can sell something. I'm going to sell something. And I'm going to bring it. And I'm going to lay it at the apostles' feet. I'll disadvantage myself. Because this is stuff for the glory of God and the benefit of the others. You see, the issues of a righteous heart, I, I tell you, it challenges me. I mean, do I ever disadvantage myself for the benefit of others? And I want to tell you, I think we're an amazing, generous church. Do you know that we, we raised $20,000 for, for Haiti last week? And do you know what every pastor worries about when you have a special offering? How's the general offering? It was good. You did great. And you've committed. We say, we want to... We wanna, Give 50,000 meals in the name of Jesus to those who are hungry in Haiti. You know, Katie and I had the privilege of going down to the Keys this week, and it's tough when you have to officiate a wedding in the Keys. It was really tough. It was <laughs> suffering for Jesus. But we, we were uh, getting a, a glass of water um, from a gentleman, a, a waitstaff, and I asked him where he's from, and he says, I'm from Haiti. 
And he, he told me, he says, I, I, I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like. And uh, he, he started telling us the story about going to school and said the only meal we usually got was from the U.S. government. And we said, you know what? We're, we're, we're making 50,000 meals at our church next week. And we're going to give it to a school in Haiti. And they say that when school children arrive there, the first thing they do is they look in the kitchen to see if there's activity. He goes, oh, yeah. It's the first thing we always did. I just say, thank you. Thank you for showing a generous heart. Thank you for responding. But I got to ask myself, have I ever really disadvantaged myself? Hmm. Have I really ever sold something (laughs) to give to someone in need? I ask that God would give me the grace to do so. Uh, Issues of a, uh, a heart, evidence of a righteous heart. It's united to other believers. They had one mind and soul. You know, how hard is it to have one mind and soul with two people? There's over 5,000 people there. I mean, the issues that divide us. Do you guys want to talk about college football right now? No. Let's talk about Jesus. Those things that will unite us to one another. Issues of evidence of a righteous heart. They hold their possessions loosely. They give sacrificially. And here you got to get this. They gave without strings attached. Here's the point. Barnabas is an example. He sells a piece of property. And what does he do with the proceeds? He comes and he lays it down at the apostles' feet. What is significant about laying it down at the apostles' feet? He's basically saying this. I'm putting myself under your authority. Use it however you feel the Lord would have you use it. We have a problem with this. I have seen that we love directing our giving. We love saying, I like this ministry. I don't like that ministry. I want to give here. I don't want to give there. I'm going to give a little bit to this and a little bit to that. I think it's biblical and scriptural that God has called us to bring a tithe into the storehouse, to bring a first 10% of the gross income that God has given us and lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, I'm going to put myself under the authority and it'll go to the light bill and support other ministries. But you know, the reality is, is we like to kind of direct our money. It's hard to let somebody else, but God has raised up a church. He's raised up elders. That's what being the church is about. It's laying at the apostles' feet saying, no strings attached. I'm going to give. I'm going to pray for my leaders, but I'm going to give for the glory of God. All reveal issues of the heart, a righteous heart. Well, then you have evidence of an evil heart, Ananias and Sapphira's heart. It's scary to hear what they were. You ready for this? Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, their hearts, it says, were filled with evils, filled with Satan. And they contrived an evil deed within their hearts. They were influenced from without and even from within. Let me explain what they did. Because you look at this and you say, what in the world's so bad about that? They sold a piece of property. I mean, we don't know how much they gave. We don't know how much they kept back. But it, doesn't it sound pretty nice? They sold a piece of property and they brought it to the apostles' feet. And they die. (laughs) Hello. But when you look at the words, you realize it says they embezzled. They embezzled what was God's. They they were hypocritical. I mean, and they contrived together. I mean, they, they, they had this plan. They had this plan together saying, let's sell the property and let's look really good doing it. And let's do what Barnabas did. Let's bring it in front of everybody and lay it down. So everybody says, man, That's awesome. Look at that couple. Aren't they great? Let's show our righteousness, but let's fill our back pocket. And let's not really trust God with all the proceeds. You see, the reality is, it's interesting. It's not not some kind of 
communist commune they lived in. They owned the land. And scripture even says, Peter says, did you not have the right to do whatever you wanted to do? You see, the, the, the evil of this is the deceit in their hearts. They wanted to be seen as righteous. And yet, they were hypocritical. You know what they were really doing? Back to Walkie in the book of Hebrew, or the book of Proverbs, when we studied the Hebrew word, wickedness. Wickedness in the Hebrew, disadvantaging the community for personal gain, is evil. It's evil in God's eyes. To disadvantage the community by holding back that which God has asked you to give. An evil heart is a self-righteous heart. You see, they, they, they were self-righteous. They wanted to appear religious, but not under God's authority. An evil heart is a hypocritical heart, saying, yes, I've given it all, and lying when they have it. An evil heart is influenced by Satan in the world from without and from our own sin within. You see, the only way to conquer this is the power of the resurrected Lord and Savior that allows us to have a gospel-soaked heart. And if we have a heart that truly understands that our identity, our joy, and our standing is now in Christ Jesus, that that should give us the grace to have a kingdom-focused life, that we could live our lives for something so much bigger than ourselves. Live for the glory of God. You know, the reality is this. I said, God, where is my heart today? <laughs> Some days I think I'm more like Ananias and Sapphira. How about you? I think, you know, this isn't a normative case. God doesn't strike us dead every time that we uh, hold back something that he's asked us to give. But I do think it's time for us to stop and say, God, examine my heart. Examine my heart. Look at, how do you know? Show me my life. What's the condition of your heart? Is it grinchy small and hardened? Or is it gospel soaked? What's the condition of your heart? Your feet will tell you, tell you. Your mouth will tell you. Your checkbook will tell you. What's the condition of your heart? And remember the amazing good news. You don't change your heart to try to get God's love and approval. The reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ is he freely and graciously gives us his love and approval. And our Savior's alive and he's the reigning king and he's given us something so much better to invest in than us, to invest in, in him and have a life that's in one accord with one another in one accord, heart and soul with him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these two amazing stories. I mean, both of them are incredible. On one side, we see the church being the church, what it's supposed to be, loving one another with heart and soul, not holding anything too tightly, but giving to those in need as the good news of the gospel was being proclaimed that Jesus is alive. That gospel is the only hope of change that we have for our hard and cold, stony hearts. And God, I pray that the truth of the gospel that Jesus is alive would resonate in each one of our hearts and that we would submit to him as king and live on mission for him as king. And God, that you would have us examine our hearts. Where are we like Ananias and Sapphira? Where are, where are we embezzling from you? And God, I pray you give us the grace, the grace again to turn to you, to seek your face. We thank you that everything we have comes from you. And we ask, God, that you would be our identity, 
not our stuff. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.